0: Welcome to Western Civilization Lecture Number 10. In this lecture we're going to cover the period after the Great Schism when the Catholic Church had two popes and as a consequence this sort of caused a crisis of confidence and authority. Uh, We are headed toward eventually the Protestant Reformation um, and what we need to do this week is sort of fill in the gap, sort of fill in the 100, 150 years between uh, the Great Schism and the Protestant Reformation, which we say officially begins in 1517. So what we're going to cover this week is some of the tumultuous tumultuous atmosphere of Europe at the time, uh, and this, this tumult was caused by a number of different things. First we need to talk about uh, the Black Plague or the Black Death. Uh, this is often called the Pestilence or the Great Mortality and that should tell you something about it. Uh, most scientists and historians agree that the bubonic plague or the Black Death, well that the Black Death was caused by the bubonic plague, that's uh, what we think today. Um, and. The black plague as it turns out was, or the bubonic plague, is a bacterial disease carried by rodents. So rodents have this disease, fleas bite those rodents, rats usually, and then those fleas then bite humans and transmit the disease that way. Of course we didn't have germ theory at the time so we weren't sure how it was being passed and this added to the panic uh, of the disease. Sixty percent of infected individuals die within the first five days of being uh, infected with the bubonic plague. Very often, lymph nodes in armpits and groins swell. Uh, Victims' skin is often black or blue because of probable because probably because of suffocation. Uh, we think that the bubonic plague was spread, well we know the bubonic plague was spread via trade routes. So this is sort of ironic because trade helped revive Europe and now <clears throat> trade is helping to kill a lot of Europe and a lot of Europeans. Uh, so we can trace the course of the, of the Black Death along those trade routes. Now, the height years, the the worst years of the bubonic plague were 1347 to 1352. This is when the plague killed the most people in Europe. Um, Some cities were able to avoid major casualties uh, from the plague by closing their gates to travelers from plague areas. They would question where you were coming from. Uh, They would note where you were coming from and if you came from an area that they knew plague was prevalent, you were not allowed to come in. Most people, if if you can imagine, in Europe at the time uh, thought that the plague was a result of God's judgment. Uh, This would be easy to think. Many, many people were dying. Uh, The cause was often unclear. Obviously it was a disease, but where it had come from, it had sort of come out of nowhere. Uh, so many people thought it was God's judgment or caused by imbalanced humors in the body. Remember at the time, uh, one of the theories in medicine was that disease was caused by the various fluids in the body being out of balance. Uh, there, and you, you sort of gauged people and measured them by which humor or which fluid in their body prevailed. And there's many different uh, there's four different fluids. Um, so at any rate, a lot of the theories about the plague were just quite frankly, totally wrong and totally ineffective uh, toward changing things. Uh, so there was a lot of panic, uh, you can imagine, a lot of uh, just mania and um, a lot of people, if you will, freaking out about uh, the Black Death. Uh, There was a group among sort of very uh, devout and maybe a little off kilter uh, Catholics called flagellants. These people would go around with cat of nine tails or whips with uh, leather with little pieces of bone or wood tied into it and they would publicly uh, whip their own backs uh, enough to draw lots of blood as a way to try to do penance for the sins of themselves or society at large to try to uh, stop the Black Plague. Um, One of the good benefits of the plague is it caused the development of public health measures, Um, maybe the most important of which was quarantine. This is maybe the first time that the practice of quarantining sometimes whole cities was practiced, and it proved to be quite effective. And if you consider that what needs to be transmitted probably first of all are rats, which come in goods shipped, if you keep those goods out, you keep the rats out, it's not a bad way of keeping the disease from coming out. So this is a very effective method for keeping the disease out, but it was slowly adopted. So the Black Death is going to usher in a very bleak era. So you can just imagine that this period of time was rather dark and rather fearful. Uh, The figure of death, a skeletal figure in a black robe, begins to feature a lot in art. Um, Sort of the Grim Reaper as we know it originates during this time. And there's a lot of societal breakdown because of this. So imagine our our, uh, pandemic movies that we have today and what pandemics do to society. Uh, the fear they create, the caste they they create. This is something like what the Black Death did. Um, One of the very unfortunate consequences of the Black Death was that um, it caused a lot of, well, everyone's looking for a scapegoat. Everyone's looking for someone to blame. And the most convenient group of people to blame were the people who were most different, the people who dressed differently, uh, lived apart, ate different food, worshipped differently. So I'm obviously talking about Jews. Jews were often uh, the victim of persecutions during the Black Plague, even though they suffered uh, from the plague as well as others. So overall, the Black Plague destroyed about one-third of the population of Europe. I want you to imagine that. One-third of the members of your family, one-third of the members of your church, one-third of the members of Mars Hill... Uh, dying. Uh, This was a very, very serious time. Some cities lost almost 50% of the population. Uh, There were a handful of cities that were absolutely wiped out. In fact, there's one story of one town where a young girl was found after the entire town had died, and a year or two later a young girl was found who had gone feral. She was kind of like a wild animal, Uh, But when she she was finally reintegrated into society, um, she became the heir of most uh, of the property in that town. It is only by the 15th century, about 100 years later, that the population of Europe rebounds from the Black Death. So this is an amazingly devastating time. The reduction of the population wound up concentrating what remaining wealth there was in just a very few hands. Um, one of the benefits of the of the plague was that workers now could get five times more the pay that they got be- before because there were so few workers. Uh, the middle class grew in wealth, all right, which is very important. The trading class, the, the nouveau riche, they grow in wealth, um, and they grow in their standard of living. Eventually, landowners don't like the fact that peasants are having to be paid so much more, and so they... Uh, They bring about changes to the law that keep them from getting paid more. And there are huge peasant revolts everywhere. And these peasant revolts could be really shockingly brutal. Many, many people killed and tortured in just uh, horrible ways. Um, The church, because it was at this time in Europe associated with established societal structures... Uh, also became a target of a lot of these riots. So it was just a very unstable time. Um, But another benefit of the time was religious art found um, a lot of patronage. You know, all through history, the question of art is where does it come from? I mean, if you consider the pyramid in Egypt as a piece of art, think about where that came from, how it was funded. It was funded on the the backs and by the sweat of uh, thousands and thousands of laborers. Well, a lot of the most famous art of the Renaissance um, came about because a lot of people with a lot more wealth than they had had before began to um, pay for art, particularly religious art. Um, And as you can imagine, much of the art of the time dealt with death. So all of these things go together. The, uh, the Black Plague, among some other things, go together to create just a very tense situation across Europe during the time. Uh, there's stability, there's trade, but a lot of people are dying and a lot of people are scared. The church, because of the failure of the uh, Great Schism, uh, was looked with looked upon with less and less trust. People began to turn away from institutions and organized faith to try to find a means of surviving or finding faith apart from organize, organized religion. Um, the divisions in the church. Um, also mirrored conflicts over how to live the proper Christian life. Many people were now sort of debating or wondering, well, is the most zealous life to be a monk, or are there other options, and what are those options? Um, So this is a time when many mystics emerge, and many of you discussed mystics in your papers. Um, These were individuals who sought contact with God apart from organized church, apart from uh, rationalism and logic and the theology of people like Thomas Aquinas. Um, They were striving for intimacy with God in an immediate way. Now, not every one of these people were totally rejecting rationalism. In fact, one of the more famous people that you might consider to be somewhat mystic was Thomas Aquinas, and he, after all, was a scholastic. There's a famous story about Thomas after he had written his Summa um that he, as in, while he was dying, um, he considered the Summa a work of straw, uh, and wanted nothing but the Song of Solomon to be read to him. And the Song of Solomon, by a lot of uh, Christians in the Middle Ages, was considered to be um, a a poetic, symbolic treatment of god's relationship with the soul. Uh, and the individual believer, or God's relationship with the church. So you can imagine that the Song of Solomon was um, was very popular with mystics um, who appropriated it um, for their relationship with God. In fact, the Song of Solomon is probably one of the most popular books of the Bible in the Middle Ages. Um, other, many other people came along and questioning uh, questioned the. Uh, type of theology done by uh, Aquinas and others. They began to call into question scholasticism um, as dry and uh, attacked it for other philosophical reasons. And finally, new literary traditions emerge out of this period of time that sort of critique traditional literary forms, um, maybe even making fun of things like chivalry Um, So there's a lot of turmoil, a lot of turbulence during this period of time uh, that are going to bring about a lot of changes to society in the long run. Um, As I mentioned a moment ago, individuals began to turn more and more from the fractured church uh, to seeking divine help in personal piety, personal mysticism, sometimes even magic. Um, So, you just need to keep in mind generally that there's this turn away from institutions to uh, more secret, mysterious means of contacting the divine or of experiencing uh, spiritual things. Uh, And we'll discuss several examples of those. So, witchcraft is widespread during this time. Um, And witchcraft, um, there's a lot of things that fall under the name of witchcraft. Uh, but many people who began to seek magical means of healing or magical means of staving off uh, danger or sickness. Um, eventually, there's going to be something called the um, Spanish Inquisition or the Court of Inquisition, which was an official branch of the Catholic Church that tried people for heresy, for teaching or practicing things that were contrary to the Christian faith. Now, in popular opinion today, the Court of Inquisition is responsible, people will say, for millions and millions of witches being burned. Um, this is really a, a silly exaggeration and an actual fact. We think the numbers were close to a couple thousand people actually killed for witchcraft in the Middle Ages. So it's much, much smaller than that. Um, there were alchemists. Now, I should point out that alchemy was the, the sort of quasi-scientific pursuit of trying to turn metals, uh, various elements, into other elements. So obviously the most sought-after chemical reaction was turning lead or other elements into gold. And it should be pointed out that in these early days... Um, is that magic and alchemy were very similar. Uh, There were not a lot of differences. Both were trying to to exert power over the natural world for human means. It's just that alchemy proved to be a dead end. It proved to be ineffective, uh, but it was very popular. Astrologers were also popular, and astrology in the sense of the stars determine our fate and you have to study the stars to know the best days to sow crops, the best days to get married, so there's a lot of superstition in regard to astrology. Um, There are many people who are practicing various kinds of folk medicine, herbalists, people who uh, learn to combine or claim to have expertise in combining various rare elements and our various rare herbs, and um, and creating powerful medicines. Uh, as I indicated before, there were many people pursuing piety, pursuing relationship with God apart from the recommended means of the church. They no longer consulted the church, and many of these people banded together and pursued various ways of doing this. Um, Some of these groups officially broke with the church. They sort of broke away and formed their own societies. Some of them stayed in the church but practiced things that the church didn't approve of. You're going to see that eventually these groups lay the groundwork um, and are creating momentum towards the Reformation. Many of these groups formed sort of societies, not convents as such, but larger communities within big cities. Um, A very popular work of devotion during the time is called The Imitation of Christ, written by Thomas A. Kempis. Um, This book is the most popular Christian book other than the Bible in Christian publishing history to date. Um, So this is a very popular book about as it says, imitation of Christ. And in particular, there's a lot of emphasis on um, almost adoring, almost worshiping the the components of communion or Eucharist. Uh, There's a a strong devotion to the communion elements in some of these uh, groups. Um, There are new monastic orders, one of which is the Franciscans, who were founded by St. Francis of Assisi, who practiced a form of Christian devotion, um, well, a new form of poverty. Um, He sort of gets back to some of the monastic roots and calls his order and others to radical poverty. And his is sort of a reaction against the material wealth of the church. Um, He looked at the, the... all the riches of the church and felt like it was a corrupting influence. And so he encourages this form of radical poverty. Francis is also famous for being sort of um, in touch with the created order, with animals, um, and uh, he's also famous for the hymn, All Creatures of Our God and King, uh, which is a great hymn of uh, calling all of creation to join in worship of the Creator. Um, the poverty movement among these Christian orders became so serious that Pope John XXII condemned radical poverty in 1323 as heretical. Uh, you could be you could be excommunicated and even killed for promoting radical poverty. So you see how uh, threatening this was to the church. Uh, another mystic, uh, Catherine of Siena, she died in 1380. Um, She was so radical, so devoted to the pursuit of mysticism that um, the people that wrote about her life said that she lived for 23 years on the Eucharist, meaning just the daily bread and wine of Eucharist, um, cold water and bitter herbs, which she chewed up and spat out. Uh, So you can imagine she was um, this sort of wasting away mystic. Uh, but she was very powerful and um, encouraged a lot of reform in the church. Um, these groups often wavered. Some of them got really kooky and really wacky. Some of them go back and forth between orthodoxy being in, in line with the teaching of the church and heresy being uh, teaching things that were way outside of the teaching of the church. Um, And sometimes the groups that were orthodox, that believed in the traditional Christian doctrines, could be confused with the more radical groups. So as I said, it was during this time that the Court of Inquisition gets established to try to ferret out who are the heretics and who aren't. It should also be pointed out that, let's say a king or a prince, if the court came into his territory and he didn't want them to do their inquisitions, they weren't allowed. So they didn't have as much power as people like to indicate that they did. So in this time of turmoil, there's a lot of individuals who become very influential. Um, and lay the groundwork for the Reformation. One of them is John Wycliffe, very famous for most Christians as the, one of the earliest translators of the Bible into English. He died in 1384. Uh, he is a theologian in Oxford in England who um, attacked a lot of the teachings of the church in a reforming kind of way. He didn't apparently want to start a new church. He simply wanted to change some things about the church. Um He taught things like that the value of the sacraments, in other words, communion or even marriage, depended on the worthiness of the priest who administered them. In other words, if it was a sinful priest, then the sacraments didn't work. Um, He believed that God gave authority to church leaders, but if they sinned, they forfeited their right to exercise authority. Um he disagreed with the teaching about communion that the bread and the wine actually were miraculously changed into the actual body and actual blood of Christ. Um, Those teachings, many of them, if he had been tried by the court of Inquisition, would have led him to the stake where he would have been uh, choked to death and then burned. Uh, But he was protected by secular leaders in England who, didn't have a problem with these teachings. Um, And in particular, he was popular because he attacked the church's right to hoard wealth. So we see this theme again, like the Franciscans, that, hey, uh, the church shouldn't be as wealthy as she is. And so a lot of these guys like this because that meant more money for their uh, governments locally. So he was one of the guys who was protected. Um, There are other groups... Uh, there's another guy named Jan Hus, spelled Jan Hus, J-A-N-H-U-S. He died in 1415. He lived in Prague. Um, and he was also very influential, um, influenced by Wycliffe and advanced many of Wycliffe's teachings. He um, he also had political criticisms. Um And he and his groups um, are later persecuted. So a lot of these guys are reformers in various ways, calling for reform in the church, calling for reform in politics. Um, uh, Jan Hus was eventually burned at the stake as a heretic. And this sparks a revolt because a lot of people uh, locally in Bohemia liked him and liked his teachings. So what we're beginning to get during this period of time in Europe is a critical and an individualistic approach to all kinds of things. Um, this includes philosophy. So in philosophy, Aquinas had worked out a balance between faith and reason. He believed that faith and reason belong together, uh, that God intended them to be together, but a lot of philosophical uh, thinkers during this time began to separate faith and reason and say they're, they're different and they belong in different realms. And so the divide that we see today between faith and reason, where people say, "Oh, your beliefs are for you and they're private, and and reason is for science and it's public," this begins during this period of time. Um, thinkers like William of Ockham believed that government should be totally divorced from any kind of religious influence; that they should be totally secular; that there should be no uh, official church of any given state. So this reminds us remarkably of the American Revolution. Um, A final thing that I want to mention during this time is uh, the growth of vernacular literature. Vernacular just means Um, of the people or the the language that everyday people spoke. Remember for most of Europe up until this time, most of European history from the end of uh, the Roman Empire up until this time uh, the main mode of literature and science and everything else was Latin. Well you begin to get, starting with writers like Dante um, writers like Chaucer in English, people writing in the native language of the people and this literature is very exciting, and uh, Chaucer, for example, has 30 different stories told from 30 different voices, and it brings all the variety of the English language at the time uh, into the literature. And so this is another very important turn during the time, and this is eventually going to turn uh, toward people seeking out Um, translations of the Bible in their own language, which is going to be a huge controversy, and it's later going to divide along Catholic-Protestant lines. People like Wycliffe believed that, like Jerome before, uh, in the 3rd and 4th century, that um, people should have a Bible in their own language. Well, this is a very controversial position, because it was thought that if people had a Bible in their own language, look at all the chaos right now where people are looking towards all kinds of superstitions imagine how they'll distort and corrupt the bible that was the line of reasoning um so there's this flowering of language of literature in vernacular literature so all of this works together to create this picture hopefully in your mind of a very uh, chaotic time uh, that is sort of paving the way um, in religion especially and later in science and philosophy toward a lot of changes, particularly the Protestant Reformation uh, as well as other things. So we will eventually turn to those events uh, in the next lectures coming up.